Welcome to How to Break Money, Episode 2, Stealing Molly Crew. This episode starts just a few months after my bubblegum profits dried up and I was broke. This was like July 1985 and my grandparents drove their Bonneville up from North Carolina to stay with us. It was the summer before my freshman year in high school. And on their first day visiting, we went to Montgomery Mall. My mom and grandparents went off to do whatever, while my little brother and I went straight for Sam Goodies. Or rather, I went straight for Sam Goodies. Alec followed. I was on a mission. Sam Goodies was the only place in the mall that would have a copy of Motley Crue's latest cassette, Theater of Pain. I didn't have any money but I wanted to at least see the tape. I wanted to look at the track listing. In Sam Goody's, like any mall record store in 1985, cassettes had taken over. Cassettes lined the walls, and LPs were relegated to the center of the store. And each tape was trapped in its own white plastic case that left the cover and the spine of the cassette visible to shoppers, but made it bulky enough to deter shoplifters. Plus, each case had a magnetic strip inside that would trigger the alarm detectors at the entrance. Alec drifted to the other side of the store and started flipping through the poster rack. Tracking along the M section, I saw Marillion, Mike and the Mechanics, Missing Persons, Molly Hatchet, and there it was. A dozen identical copies of Motley Crue's Theater of Pain. I pulled out a copy, walked away, far enough to put a few LP racks between me and the cashier, right then deciding for the first time in my life to shoplift. I was going to steal this tape. I believed deeply I needed this tape. kept an eye on the cashier while keeping my hands below the LP rack sightline. The store was mostly empty and she looked bored but not at me and pretending to shop as my fingers searched for a weakness in the white plastic case. Along the spine of the tape case, my thumb pushed past the design, snapping the top piece off. So... I could pull out the tape, blind, not looking down. This was during my Miami Vice phase. So I was wearing a linen blazer that had an inside pocket where I quickly slid the newly freed cassette. My thumb hurt. I was left holding an empty plastic case. Uh, I quickly abandoned that in the closest rack next to the LPs above a stretch of Peter, Paul, and Mary cassettes. I walked over to Alec as he was staring at a poster of a woman in a bikini draped over the fender of a Ferrari. He must have been pretty focused because he was startled when I said, Hey, not sure how long to stand there before leaving casually with my new tape. I looked down at my thumb, which was sticky with blood. I pinched it against my index finger, 
a voice behind us said, excuse me. I ignored her, knowing exactly what was coming. Woman's voice again behind us asked, excuse me? Alec turned around. She's talking to you. I turned around to see the cashier standing there holding the broken white plastic case. Where did you get this? A sweat drop eternity evaporated before I blurted out, I found it. Show me where. Alec was between the cashier and I. I could have walked around him, but instead I barreled through him. Get out of my way, I told him, like a angry older brother, pissed at the inconvenience, but I was not mad. And instead, had flashed on a plan, pretending to be annoyed at Alec, I pushed him aside with my left arm, and with the same motion, my right arm pulled the tape from the inside pocket of my jacket and slipped it to Alec. Alec had no idea I stole that tape. He had no idea I was going to hand it to him, but he didn't miss a beat and backed away, concealing the tape, adding perfectly, sorry. I walked to the M section. Here, pointing at the stretch of Molly Crew tapes. Why did you move it? I don't know. Where's the tape that was in here? I had no answer for her. Empty your pockets. Pulled my front pockets inside out. My two dollars tumbled down onto the floor. Showed her the lining of my coat. I turned around, showed her my back. Nothing was in my pockets. She stood there, looking at me. Then she looked over to see a customer waiting at the register. She ignored me, turned around, and walked to the register still holding the broken case. I picked up my $2, walked over to Alec, who was just pretending to look at the posters now. Where is it? Let's go. Where is it? Behind the posters, Alec said, walking away, leaving me there. Groping blind behind the poster rack, I felt the tape and slipped it back into the inside pocket of my linen blazer. Then I knew exactly what to do. I walked towards the cashier. Next to the register was a foam cube display covered with buttons. 99 cents plus tax. Madonna. Culture Club. The Police. Michael Jackson. And the button I grabbed. Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy's face was mid-howl. You could see his fangs. He was wearing a werewolf costume, thick with matted hair. The button said, bark at the moon. The cashier rang it up. Didn't say a word. I offered her the $2. She didn't even look at me. Dropped the change in my hand. Put the button in a small paper bag. Placed it on the counter for me to grab. I could see Alec outside the store waiting for me. I grabbed the bag and tightrope towards the exit. The metal detectors remained silent. I made it. I left and got swallowed up by the bustle of the mall's indoor promenade. I walked up to Alec. Your thumb's bleeding, he said. A bloody thumbprint marked the paper bag. I took 
out the button, pinned it on my lapel, threw out the bag. The tape felt heavy in my coat on the ride home. But as soon as I got home, I went up to my room and locked the door. I pulled the tape out. It was wrapped in cellophane, and the neon pastel palette of the artwork was perfectly tuned to 1985. The cover depicted sock and busket, the ancient masks of Greek tragedy, you know, comedy and tragedy, happy and sad. Also, two-faced beginnings. Unwrapping the cellophane released that fresh petroleum smell of new tape. I pulled the clear plastic cassette from the case, slipped it into my boombox, kept the speakers low, as if my mom would know I was blasting a new Motley Crue tape. By the middle of the first side, I had to admit it. It sucked. This tape sucked. It sucked. I stole it for nothing. There was a man named Benjamin Church. He lived in Plymouth Colony, and in the late 17th century, he was given King Philip's wampum belt. Captain Benjamin Church was a mercenary and ranger. Maybe America's first ranger, if you trace your roots to Plymouth Rock, but not if you traced your roots farther back. Then he's just another English mercenary. In Massachusetts, during the 1670s, Benjamin led mercenaries against King Philip during King Philip's War, which was not really a war, nor was Philip a king. Philip was a Wampanoag leader, also known as Medicom. The battles between the Wampanoag leader and his forces and the English is still the bloodiest conflict on American soil, if judged by the percentage of population killed. The English around Massachusetts were claiming too much land, crowding out the Wampanoag and their neighbors with uh, cruel efficiency. Resentment built up, as broken treaties from the English accumulated like sediment, forming a solid ground of distrust. The conflict is believed to have been triggered by the execution of three men. Three Wampanoag men were convicted by an English court of murdering another Wampanoag known as John Sassamon to the English. John Sassamon had been killed by the three men a few weeks after John had warned the English of an impending attack by Philip. The historical record doesn't bear out the truth of that rumor, but Philip did seem to have a hand in John's death and thought it no business of the English to execute three Wampanoag men. The ensuing conflict quickly accumulated a body count. Benjamin pursued Philip with the same tactics Philip used against the English, but this story is not about King Philip's war. This story is about the bargain struck after, after Philip was killed and his body desecrated when his head on a pike was left in the public square of Plymouth for all to see. 
Philip's chief captain and advisor, Anawan, was still in the wind, his intentions unknown. Benjamin was hired to capture him. The alternative was massacre and strife, at least in the eyes of the English elite, who were victorious, but still terrified that Anawan was a smoking ember that would spark the conflict's flames bright again and consume the survivors. When a few of Anawan's men were spotted going upriver, the rumor quickly spread to Benjamin's ears. Even though Benjamin was due to leave the next morning, he rounded up the few men available and headed out in pursuit. The weather changed, and Benjamin's boats hit bad wind on the river. He managed to ferry himself across with a handful of men before the wind beat everyone else back. His small group hid their boats and marched into the thicket to remain undetected, avoiding the well-worn paths that ribboned the bank of the river. The weather cleared. Benjamin's small band of mercenaries and native guides were threading through a meadow when the sound of a far-off gunshot stopped them in their tracks. Benjamin sent four of the guides out to scout. They were instructed to capture, not kill. Benjamin needed information. The four scouts disappeared into the marsh towards the sound of that lone gunshot. Benjamin and the rest of his crew marched upstream. Later, another far-off gunshot was heard. Still, Benjamin marched upstream until nightfall. The guides did not come back. One of the guides that the English called Nathaniel was a greenhorn. The other three were locals. Maybe they switched sides. Worried about signaling their location, Benjamin decided to camp without fire, which was just as well. They hardly had food to cook. At daybreak, Nathaniel, the missing scout, comes sprinting towards Benjamin and was almost in his arms before blurting out the good news. They captured 10 of Anawan's men. For breakfast, everyone ate captured horse meat. Even though they had no bread, every man had a bag of salt. They had a good fire and salted their roasted meat while Benjamin interrogated his new hostages. Benjamin was told Anawan was close, but that he never slept in the same place twice. One of the guides had a father who lived nearby, and he told Benjamin his dad could help their search. Benjamin chose him along with two more guides and three English, telling the other half of his men to sit tight and guard the hostages. The young guide raced ahead, looking for his father, disappearing into the forest. Benjamin and the rest of the small band follow in the same direction. Sometime later, they hear someone approaching from behind, hiding in the brush. They waited until an old man with a rifle over his shoulder passed by in the company of a young woman. The group sprang out onto the trail, seizing the two travelers. The two said they were from Anawan's camp. The woman revealed the camp numbered about 60, but she's unsure how many miles away they were. The two of them were sent out to see what was taking the hunting party so long. Benjamin tells them he's captured the hunting party and is taking both of them hostage. The young guide finally looped back with his father in tow, but Benjamin sent the duo back to camp, instructing them to gather the hostages 
gather the horses, and meet him tomorrow on Rehoboth Road, if he's still alive. The old man, his rifle confiscated, was asked by Benjamin to help him find Anawan. The old man replied that since he wasn't dead, he did owe his life to Benjamin and would take him to camp, but they'd have to haul ass to make it by sundown. They hauled ass. Sometimes the old man would get way out front and have to wait for the group to catch up. They didn't make it by sundown, though. Just as the sun was setting, the old man stopped, and he told them Anawan sent out scouts at nightfall. After dark, the scouts returned to camp. They all waited until dark and kept absolutely still. When it grew dark enough, the old man stood up and Benjamin asked if he gave his rifle back, would he fight for Benjamin? The old man bowed his head and asked him not to impose such a thing. He could not fight against Anawan, his old friend. But he promised to go along, be helpful, and lay hands on any man that should offer to hurt Benjamin. Following the old man, everyone stayed close, and after a while, they heard a distant, repeating noise. Took a long minute for Benjamin to recognize the rhythm and thud of mortar-pounding meal. They followed a trail that led them to a giant, craggy rock. A thin path traced up along the far side of the large rock. The noise was coming from the other side. Crawling up and peering over to the other side, Benjamin surveyed the camp below. A felled tree leaned against the sheer slab of rock, and a row of birch branches acted as a shelter above Anawan and his son. Great fires were burning, with kettles boiling and spits roasting meat. The rifles were all set together under a mat to protect them from the morning dew. Anawan and his son lounged closest to the rifles. Benjamin slid back down the steep path and timed his movements to the thump of the mortar as cover for his scrambling retreat. Once back with the others, he asked the old man if there's another way into camp. There is not, he said. So Benjamin forced the old man and the young woman to walk around the base of the rock and slowly step into camp without saying a word, creating enough shadow and trust for the rest of the group to surprise the camp. It worked. Benjamin came upon Anawan with a hatchet, but Anawan sprang up and surrendered, stopping any bloodshed. Then Anawan sat back down and remained silent as Benjamin secured the rifles. Once the weapons were secured, Benjamin relaxed and was fed dinner. Benjamin pulled out his bag of salt and salted his meat ate it along with some green corn hash, pounded by the mortar, that it sounded out Anawan's location like a beacon. After eating his fill, Benjamin sent word through his guides that Philip was dead and the hunting party captured. He told the camp that if they all surrendered, that no harm would come to them. Mercy was promised to those who kept their place until morning. Benjamin 
could promise mercy for Anawan's crew, but he had no such authority with Anawan, whose fate would be decided by Benjamin's Plymouth masters. Benjamin's bluff worked, and the camp yielded to his demand. By giving the impression of an army close at hand, he left the camp unaware that they outnumbered his men probably six to one. Having not slept in over two days, Benjamin needed a crash. He asked his men to keep watch for two hours. Then he'd get up and handle watch until daybreak. But once Benjamin laid down, all disposition to sleep departed him. After laying awake a while, he went to check on his men, who were all sound asleep. Everyone in camp was sound asleep, except for Benjamin and Anawan. Benjamin settled into a bivouac, and the two of them stared at each other across bright moonlight. Benjamin felt the language barrier and said nothing. This went on until Anawan rose up and walked out of sight. Benjamin assumed he went to take a piss, but became worried when Anawan walked out of earshot. In Benjamin's paranoid mind, he was going to be attacked, so he knew he was outnumbered and tried to slide closer to Anawan's son, ready to kill him. Benjamin lay there, waiting to be attacked, waiting to kill Anawan's son until he finally heard Anawan approaching. Under the spotlight moon in a clear sky, he could see Anawan was holding a bundle. Anawan addressed him in English. Great captain, you've killed Philip and conquered his country, for I believe that I and my company are the last that war against the English. So, suppose the war is ended by your means, and therefore these things belong to you. The language barrier fell away. Anawan pulled out a wampum belt, the carefully wrought belt was nine inches wide, covered in purple and white wampum beads, strung into a tapestry-like pattern that illustrated various figures, flowers, birds, and beasts. Benjamin stood as Anawan placed the belt over his shoulder and it reached almost to the ground. A second belt was pulled from the sack and presented to Benjamin as a headpiece, with two flags hanging down the back and another small belt hanging over the breast with a star. Both of these belts were edged with red hair. Then he presented two horns of glazed powder along with a red cloth blanket. Anawan told Benjamin they were Philip's royalties. He adorned himself with them while sitting in state, and Anawan thought himself relieved that he had the opportunity to present them to Captain Church who had won them. After the exchange of the belts, the two of them spent the night in discourse. Benjamin was right to caution Anawan that he could not guarantee mercy. When Benjamin returned from visiting the governor and relinquishing the belt, he found that Anawan had already been executed, his head on a pike. King Philip's wampum belts were sent by the governor to the King of England, and there is no record the King of England ever received them. They disappear from the historical record. The Wampanoag are still searching for those belts. 
they still value those belts and the beads that made them, while the English colonies soon abandoned the use of wampum as currency. I mean, wampum as a currency lasted essentially 50 years. After the Dutch had been driven out and the Native Americans decimated and starved, there was less and less need to negotiate, and it was easier and easier for the English to take what they wanted. But the soldiers that they used to do that still needed to be paid, and coins were still scarce. In 1690, the Massachusetts Bay Colony financed an attack on the French in Canada. Anticipating treasure and plunder, they financed the campaign poorly, not anticipating the utter failure of the campaign to secure any plunder. So there wasn't enough money in the treasury to pay the soldiers when they got back. So the colony government printed money, backed by the government and legal tender for taxes. This is widely considered the first printed currency in America. And its magic, like the magic of wampum, was that the bearer of the note could cash the note, whoever they were. In fact, the government's own declaration, laying out the terms of the currency, said, And any person, having said bills in his hands, may accordingly return the same to the treasurer, and shall receive the full sum thereof in money. Up next in episode three. Why don't you just hang up on me, ma'am? I don't understand. So what would a person have to do? Uh, well, what a person would have to do is hang up on me and then start their life and go look for an actual job and not uh, fly-by-night fantasy things. You've been listening to How to Break Money, and I'm Eric Allen. For all episodes and more information, visit howtobreakmoney.com. To contact me directly, write a message and send it to howtobreakmoney at gmail.com. And if you listen this far, please rate the episode on whatever app you use or share it with a friend. <laughs>